get it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Pod Me If You Can. This is Pod Me If You Can. Movie reviews by David and Lloyd. An Australian podcast on your favorite movies. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Welcome to Pod Me If You Can, I'm David Farrell. And I'm Lloyd Hughes. And today's film is the 2016 Australian drama Embedded, which is directed by Stephen Sewell. Lloyd and I have just watched, really. Um, Stars Nick Barkler as Frank, Laura Gordon as Madeline, and I've recently learned that they're a couple in real life. The film, we've obviously watched it, we're going to be talking about with spoilers in mind, so if you haven't seen the film or you don't mind getting it spoiled, just thought we'd do this warning at the head of the episode. So Lloyd, uh, on Embedded, I feel like, in a way, uh, it's 90 minutes I'm not going to get back unless I do a <laughs> podcast about it. And I haven't felt this disappointed in a film since maybe War Horse, maybe Upside Down, which have been the real... Oh gosh, that bad. ...real lowlights, yeah, of our podcast. I, I hated this as I was watching it. The more time went past, the less interested I was. And um, I really wanted to like it. I mean, I, I try and watch Australian films, I try and support Australian films... And I didn't feel I could support this. Um, <laughs> well, how did you go? <laughs> I'll start off with some of the positives. So this is a chamber piece, two characters who engage in a heated affair, a chess match sort of like of the sexual and the cerebral. Frank, who's played by Nick Barkia, maybe going through trauma. His use of drugs and, you know, his moody demeanour suggests that, like he's about to implode. Madeline, played by Laura Gordon, I thought was a high-class escort for, like, the longest time, but obviously <laughs> there's much more to her. There's a focus on a journalist's viewpoint on the current state of the world, its politics and corruption, and the film explores the facade <laughs> of the two main characters. We're never really entirely sure if any of what the main characters say to each other is true, but we do get a glimpse into their soul through their actions, and I do believe that Frank is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder from his work as a war journalist, and there is a deep look into like his morality, and there is a sense like he's losing his soul, and he knows it, and maybe Frank is right in the end that he can't change the world that he lives in or the economical powers that run it, but maybe he can get redemption in violent revenge against one of their agents, which he sees as the military commander, Cassidy, who's played by uh, Peter Phelps. Um, Peter Phelps, yep. Which, of course, he doesn't get a chance anyway because Madeline is really from the high powers in the end, I'm guessing. She's seductive, intelligent, and very, very dangerous, and Frank just becomes another victim in the end. The film opens with the two of them having sex for presumably the first time. That's probably why you thought she was an escort, because most of this film takes place in a hotel room. It's quite claustrophobic, and there's no budget to it. And she has a bawdy look, Laura Gordon. Like, she's a very beautiful actress, you know, and I think one of the high points of this film was they do succeed in those sex scenes, those sexual activity, there's more going on there. It's like a expression of Frank's anger, frustration and all that, and maybe it's her trap that she's forming, like she's this seductive spider bringing him into this trap sort of thing. So I do like the sexual, the erotic sense in this film. I think they did that really well. It starts with that, but then it just, like it just, things dissolved as, as time went on. I, I did sort of feel like... 
the acting was a major talking point in this film. Because initially I thought he was okay and she was quite good. And then Peter Phelps came on screen and I was like, whoa, he's doing a terrible accent. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Peter Phelps was famously in Baywatch's first season uh, back in the day. And um, I found his acting jarring in this. Um, Was it just the accent throwing you off or just everything? uh, A little bit. Mostly it's the accent, yeah. Embedded comes from the fact that he's embedded on the front line. So the whole war correspondent element is the only sort of break you get from this hotel room. Uh, Briefly, the two characters go and visit a nightclub or something. and, And other than that, they just sort of are in the room talking. And I kept thinking, if this is a one night stand affair situation, why hasn't she left yet? You know, and I can see why you thought she was a call girl because she's being paid to stay. Maybe that's why she's staying. I kept thinking she should leave. <laughs> like, why is she still there? Don't, doesn't she have a life? Doesn't she have people who miss her? And so the twist you mentioned where she's within the powers that be, that she's there for a reason, that she's monitoring him and, and everything, I kind of saw coming. And I thought that was the only ending that the film could have. Yeah, because so much of it is so rambly and uh, it did feel like it belonged on a stage. It... It was based on a stage production, so it didn't really translate for me as a film. I heard this is Stephen Sewell's warm-up film to another project he's got in mind. They wouldn't give him the green light to do that project. They're like, no, you haven't directed anything. So they were like, oh, you have to direct something. Do you reckon you can do a low-budget? Yeah, I can whip something up, a low-budget story. And so this is the film he whipped up just to get that um, credit score that he has actually done a feature film. So now he's got some backing to say, I've done a feature film. This is what I've done. It's a professional release or whatever. And I guess now they're going to give him the green light to do his pet project. As a first film, there are some huge directing flaws here. Like, oh gosh, usually stage directors have massive advantages when they get into filmmaking. And certainly Stephen Sewell can conjure strong performances from his leads, although I think it's pretty lopsided, which I'll get to. Him and his DOP, Rianne Bannenberg, if I'm pronouncing that name correctly, decided to go with a lot of handheld. That really becomes effective when we hit the journalism scenes of war. Handheld is a really strong tool to amplify gritty scenes. But in beautiful hotel rooms, like handheld can make the room look a bit more sinister and uncomfortable despite the, you know, the cleanliness look of a hotel room itself. And I think he could have saved a lot of his close-ups, just some basic classic film grammar would have really helped this film and I don't think he has any understanding of any film grammar at all. To really emphasise some key dialogue um, moments you know he should have really studied some Tarantino or some Peter Bogdanovich the old masters of the silent era only ever cut to a close-up when it was important that way it's much more effective for the drama and what would have really helped is if he stayed in a Uh, a long shot or a medium shot and then when the key lines come then cut to a close-up and I don't think he understands that at all like there's one scene a key scene where Madeline is about to leave and they argue about who they are and Madeline wants to go on with life because that's the way it's always been and Frank is looking for his next war zone to produce a story on and the camera just pans between them it just goes left to right to left to right there is no blocking or staging it's the laziest form of shooting i have seen in a long long time 
Like, and I'm picturing the editor getting this footage going, oh, crap. <laughs> Just no basic understanding of filmmaking techniques. And if you're going to approach a story like that with no enthusiasm or idea to place the camera, and camera placement is so important in movie making, then your audience or viewer aren't going to invest any emotion into anything that you're talking, into anything in the story. And that's what I felt like. I was getting really bored. And these actors are trying their hearts out, you know, with this, you know, somewhat interesting dialogue. But because, you know, you're not, the filmmaking craftsmanship isn't there, I was so disengaged. Absolutely. Well put. I felt like, you know, obviously the film opens with their sex scene, but I really felt like we should have seen the sequence where they met for the first time. Uh, she mentions gate crashing an embassy party and he made an ass of himself. Wouldn't that have been a good sequence to see? I don't think they had the budget to afford no. it. No, <laughs> no, no, but obviously not. They, um, they, they're just jibber-jabbering and you don't have any context at the beginning of the film. Uh, he keeps saying that he isn't a banker and he isn't a fisherman or whatever, and I was like, just tell her, because the audience already knows. They know you're a war correspondent on the front lines. You don't have to lie to her. And in fact, knowing everything we know now, she already knows as well. So there are whole sequences where I'm like, just get cut to the chase, you know, get to it. And he kept speaking in riddles and all of his stories. I know, were I know, yeah. Dancing around the truth and lying to each other and repeating themselves. And I get that they're speaking their minds and, you know, but let me ask you a question. Partway during the film, you see there's a camera angle of what looks like a hidden camera. Oh, that, I was just about to bring that up. Yeah. The choice of going to surveillance camera footage was so bad. It looked like a filter in, in iMovie. And it's just a really distracting layer. What it's supposed to suggest is that Frank is under surveillance and the presence of the elite of this world is always watching you. There's like no escape and no hope. And it encourages the idea that Madeline may be an agent of this unseen or unknown government or private sector security. But... Peter Bogdanovich said good filmmaking is one you don't notice and cutting to those security camera footage just really took me out of the drama. Just like, oh, what, what was that? Oh, what were they saying? Oh, hold on. You know what I mean? Like you just disrupted the flow of that scene. Well, the first thing I wrote here is, so that camera angle, so this is a sting? And then I wrote, why is she staying? If she wanted to fling, have the sex and then go. Even if he ordered room service, why is she staying after it's eaten? Doesn't she have a home and a life or people that are missing her? <laughs> so she's here to monitor him. And that's, I've written that, you know, 10 minutes into the film. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So then, like I said, that felt like the only logical way this could end was that if she was in on it, because I didn't understand at all why she stays. And especially, uh, like, she keeps applying lipstick and stuff, even though they're going to bed and not going out. All the actions were just like, I feel like I should be doing something in this scene. Should I be doing something? Yeah, 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 I'll play some lipstick. And then they apply lipstick and then go back to bed. Like, Did you have in, the, in your notes, why isn't he paying her yet? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just felt like her whole thing about having a husband, I was like, oh, I don't really care. Like, I, I felt completely detached from the drama, like you said. And when he pulls a gun, you know, she says Mossat and he thinks that she's a uh, you know, she's in on it. He's right. He's right, yeah. <laughs> and obviously he's not going to shoot her or whatever. You know, he's just kind of testing her. But at that point, if she was a normal person, she would have tried to leave, you know? So, like, that makes it obvious that she's in on it because he pulled a gun and she wasn't like, 
I'm out of here. Had she left the room, and they, even they shot in the hallway, it would have been better. You're not going to have a gun in a hallway. You know, they probably didn't have the rights and, you know, the budget and the armour and whatever else they required. To, that that to do prop anything. looks so bad, Dave. Uh, I've shot a lot of short films. You guys can go to HaleyStales.com. The links are on our website to see some of my short films. And I've shot with a lot of fake guns. I know how to shoot with them. And this was the fakest gun I've seen. Like, oh, I think they must have went to Golo or Hot Dollar Shop or somewhere and, and got it. But um, the, you need to hide that. You need to put some weight in there. Like, obviously, the actors, like, the, I think at the very end when Laura Gordon was pointing the gun at Frank, she's actually struggling to find the trigger. Or, or her, hand, her finger wasn't on the trigger. It might have been on purpose, but it did look like she was uh, uncomfortable holding the gun. It just didn't have the right weight to it. And I remember when we did our podcast on Christopher Nolan's first film, The Following, he specifically went out of his way to not have a gun as the main weapon in the film. He used a hammer because a hammer looks more threatening. But if you can't afford to have an actual gun, there's something about the weight of it that doesn't look threatening. If an actor holds a gun, you can tell that that's a fake gun because the weight isn't there. And he knew, he knows that. And I never understood that um, because I've made so many films with using fake weaponry or maybe the guys I use just know how to mask it. I didn't understand what Christopher Nolan meant till I saw this film. Like that gun looks so fake. It was laughable and it took me out of it. Well, for me, the thing that took me out of it most, and I don't mean to just pick on him, but Nick Barkler's acting. It was so lopsided. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was doing a fine enough job. I think it was noticeably worse for him just because he wasn't well, first of all, I didn't believe him as uh, being jaded and war-torn. Um, I didn't feel like he was on the verge of anything for the first part of the film. Uh, there was some moments later where he got teary in his water, water eyes, you know, and there was some more emotion to his acting. But for me, the problem in the acting was that he wasn't pausing in his speech. Now, when she says something, he'll immediately say his thing without leaving any pause, as if he's just read it off a script. Yeah, there was a bit of... Like very uh, uh, stage-like um, directing to their d dialogue, the way how they delivered it, their their, their readings and, and so forth. And I kind of liked it because it kind of reminded me of the 40s, but it did, uh, films of the 40s, I should say, but it did, yeah, seem out of place. Like, yeah, you could really see the, the director's background as a stage director um, coming in there. It felt like an effort to get all the dialogue out, like the social network or something, but there was no need for it to be so fast-paced. It did just sound like waffling, and I didn't get time to focus on what he said before she had to start speaking, or vice versa. There was no time to let it land and then let anything have any weight. So she would say something, and he would cut her off immediately, as soon as she's finished speaking, with some more gibberish, and then I would immediately be focusing, okay, he's speaking now. And it was so jarring and it made me hate it i did write down at the halfway point of this film my wife said i hate this <laughs> while we were watching it so uh i hadn't said anything at that point i was not enjoying it but she confirmed for me that it wasn't just me <laughs> i found the rants about the world to be really shallow like this angry reporter screaming to the world against its corruption that maybe he wants to lose himself in drugs and alcohol while the world burns. I found it to be really juvenile. I struggled a bit because Nick Barkier just didn't quite make it when delivering these key lines, but also because Stephen Sewell 
is so shallow in his political barrage. He should really watch Oliver Stone's Salvador. Funny we covered Oliver Stone's Snowden last week. Uh, Stephen Sewell is no way on the same page as Oliver Stone or anything like that. But in Salvador, which is also about a journalist in a hellish civil war, gives James Woods this incredible speech and monologue about American political intervention throughout the world. It's a very personal and angry monologue that obviously the director Oliver Stone felt very close to, but the whole film of Salvador gives you an understanding of the political environment of the film, and we really get a deep understanding of the context of Richard Boyle's experience, that's a character um, uh, James Woods plays, in Embedded we're, we're given these really great um, scenes of war, but they're so fragmented, you're constantly trying to put together what little pieces you have by the time frank is crying against the world i was like okay i guess he's seen worse like what has frank been affected with like he did see a younger soldier die in combat uh he saved a young kid from almost dying uh in a minefield kids being used for sex and a village being destroyed by drones which was delivered in dialogue but these moments aren't built up well they're they're so fragmented amidst all the existential speech moments like you said the drivel um, of both himself and Madeline and it becomes so muddled had he had focused that a little bit more so we get an understanding of the context of where Frank is coming from it would have made the speech more effective or as well if um both characters weren't lying to each other. Yeah, um, because you don't know. She, yeah. yeah, you don't know who to believe. You don't know if he's a credible narrator or if she's like you know. Just if they're lying to each other, who do we believe? We believe nobody. We don't become invested in the story. It's like you said as well. I mean, just on the the fact that she might have been a hooker. She wants the best champagne when they first get there, and she says, "Buy me a dress, which is two thousand euros," and then. In the club, she's all crazy and, and whatever. I was thinking, like, maybe he should find a new girl, or if he's that way inclined, get a hooker, because, like, she's quite an expensive person to keep around. Again, you know, you can see how you confused her for being a hooker, and, I mean, they really fool people with the sex scene at the start of the film and the nudity. You know, you think you're getting some more erotic thriller than it is, but it does kind of peter off from there. But she's so good looking, you couldn't leave her. <laughs> That's the gist I got. Uh, as well, they include the belt choking out sex act. Famously, Michael Hutchins allegedly uh, died while doing, and, and David Carradine allegedly. They sort of have this very full-on sex act where she's got the belt around his neck. Then they cut from that to a bath. And I felt like a bath is too familiar like a couple kind of thing, they've skipped over the whole one-night standness of this relationship. It's become really personal, like to put two people in a bath together. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't enjoy the whole juxtaposition, I suppose, of going from the really violent sex act to the calm nature of a bathtub. That violent sex act is such a th interesting thematic uh, act to do in a film because it combines both sex and death. The idea is that um, sex is our uh, our immortality, that that's our weapon against death, so to speak, that we have sex, we can reprocreate procreate and continue on and so forth. And that idea is infused together in that moment where she's choking him out, almost to the point of passing out, and as you say, possibly dying from that while in a sexual act. I find that very interesting, but and I think that's the themes that the director was going for there. 
And he is supposed to be suicidal yeah. in some to some extent. He mentions revenge uh, halfway through the film too, so like he's going to go out in a blaze of glory. Yeah, I think that's what he feels is his redemption. Like, uh, like uh, yeah, the world is screwed, but if I can just do this one act, take out Cassidy, the that military guy, then um, at least I'll be able to sleep at night sort of thing. As well, she asks him if he's going to kill himself at the end of the night and that really threw me because I didn't know how many nights we'd been in this hotel yeah, room Yeah, that's that right. Point. You're not quite sure how many, the passing of time or anything like that, especially with those big balloon close, uh, balloon head close-up shots of them talking about ancient Egypt or something like that. I, I do like that idea that we're going into these existential sort of talks, but because it, uh, the placement of those moments just really makes it muddled and you just thrown all this information, you're just like, okay, where's the focus? And then when the big monologues come, you're just like, okay, where's this coming from now? Your mind is just constantly trying to piece together all these fragments. It's a challenging film in a way, but I think a lot more focus would have really helped uh, this movie to get us more invested in the characters. Halfway through, I, I was just losing any interest. Well, I mean, there's there's a real lack of conflict after the gun comes out and then gets put away. You're waiting to see what will happen next. It's not. There's no twists and turns, and it's so slow in points. I mean, we watch him pour a cup of tea twice and then watch TV, and then they dance, you know, like... The pacing felt very off, and the monologues, like you say, they're unfocused. He mentions this is just what you do before you going back out there, which implies that you know the hotel way of life, getting a hooker or you know meeting a girl and doing drugs, is just the the thing he's doing because that's what you do. But he's not focused in his kind of revenge at that point. As well, they talk about the theater of war. The currency of war is drugs and guns, and he says we've built a system that wouldn't exist if we weren't there. Uh, you know, we build a school and they bomb it and so on and so on. I don't know, I didn't enjoy the flow of the film at all. And I kept hoping she was a spy or that she was there with her own agenda, you know, with with some sequence where she would terrorise the bank employees downstairs. Maybe she was using him for his hotel room, you know, that she was really interested in what was going on downstairs and he wasn't the one. He was just going to be used like a pawn in in her game. Do you reckon she did the accent um, really well, Laura Gordon? Yeah, that was pretty solid. Yeah, I think I, I think she's going to, maybe not from this film, but I think she's got a very promising career. She's very good looking, very sexy, very willing to go into these erotic sort of roles. It might be different for this film because that is her partner um, in, in the film. But uh, yeah, I do think she has a very promising career. She, I think she's the best thing of this whole movie. Of course, yeah. Which is good because she's 50% of the movie. It's just the other 50% doesn't work. The climax of the film, was a conversation where as the whole film was a conversation I felt cheated in the third act he talked about the uh, eight-year-old kid that died in front of him and he says do you love me Madeline and she says yes and I was like really <laughs> and allegedly with Mike uh, not Michael Phelps uh, Peter Phelps's character being downstairs you know because he's downstairs I really felt like we should have seen him they could only the afford end. him for one day though yeah, well, that's it. If they'd had a knock on the door and he'd opened the door and there would have been a bit more of a three-person involved in this conversation, or... Well, they had the waiter. I thought he was really cool as well. Yeah, he was fine, but, I mean, it's more difficult to tie up the loose end of of his, his character without seeing him again, like knowing that he was in cahoots with Laura Gordon's character, uh, Madeline, even if after she shot him and we didn't see a muzzle flash, it cut to black. So, again, kind of a cheap out way of doing it. But as well, had we seen him then after the fact open the door and he was like, 
what happened or whatever and get kind of a debrief about it, there would have been some closure to what she was even doing there. Whereas we don't really get any answers in the end, which is very unsatisfying. Um, we, we get that she's an agent, but we don't really... I mean, we know that from her not making very normal choices, as I said, like staying in the room with somebody with a gun. We're supposed to believe, I think, that because her mother committed suicide, that she sees him as someone who's going to commit suicide and she wants to help him. I don't think that was a very strong and didn't come across very well. There's some moments where I think it made me think that this film was shot by a second unit because the war scenes I thought were pretty successful. Like it did feel foreign, like they did shoot it in Africa. Like I thought that was very, very successful, although it was very minuscule, the military people that we saw, the battle um, scene that we saw was uh, very, very small, but again, successful. Uh, But yet when we get to the hotel room and then he goes, oh, come with me, I'll take you to the market, that market scene was so bad. It was just like, you know, almost like like a stage. They they only had like a a, a very blank black stage and just like, okay, get to close-ups as much as possible so we don't actually get to any long shots of the alley or the street. Like, I was just like, where are we? Are we, are we still in Africa? I mean, as well, like, uh, you know, in that scene where they hand him a gun and tell him he has to fire on the front line, He's shooting at nobody because we never see the other half of it and we never see the end of that battle. So well, again, we do we... see the sniper. Oh, well, I have a quick flash of them. I've, I felt cheated about that action sequence too. But the thing that really annoyed me was that they drove past a nurse on the side of the road and he looks at her and she looks at him and there's this lingering contact like they know each other. Uh, presuming she was pra- played by Laura Dillon, Lauren Dillon, sorry, who's credited as Nurse Hendrika Lund. But then they didn't really develop that at all. Where was she in the rest of the story? Did I completely pass out and, and miss the storyline where he meets the nurse or... Oh, I tuned out a few times, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, you're not alone. Yeah, uh, I want to talk just about the final shot of the film. He wakes up at the end and he's wearing his, like, press attire. How do you interpret or explain that last shot, you know? Is this the afterlife? He's been shot. Was it all a dream? Is he about to repeat his life? They did some Egyptian rubbish about that. The correct answer is who cares? <laughs> ah, brilliant. Well, I feel like we've probably talked about Embedded enough. I didn't want to have watched it for absolutely no reason. So it's good to dissect it here. And I'm pleased that much like last episode where we both enjoyed Snowden, here we both did not enjoy Embedded. So I'm, it was curi- easy. I'm curious, what, what do you think happened at the end? Uh, I've got to think that it was, they were having a conversation about how you repeat your life and it doesn't, it's not in my mind right now, but I think it was, they were talking about Egyptian stuff. Uh, so I'm assuming that he woke up and he's about to kind of repeat all of this or maybe he's trapped in some kind of permanent hell where he's stuck being in this war zone which he hates where he's going to hell for doing something or he I don't think it's the afterlife it. yeah. yeah he's doomed to repeat it it would be a pretty big cop out if all of that was a dream and that he never was in oh, God. a hotel and he just was having a nap on the battlefield or something I thought some of the cinematography was quite competent if I can you know try and give you my positives for the film sometimes I thought oh that's a pretty interesting shot uh, but we did linger on them for a really long time there's a reflection of a table uh, where they're upside down and you know you can read into that that the whole world is upside down like their speeches are saying or that something's not right things are askew uh, but we sat on that shot for too long and, and every time we had a nice kind of cinema 
cinematography or a nice uh, visual moment. It's like you say, we pan back and forth and back and forth until the point where you're sick of it. Yeah, look, uh, I didn't think those cameras were ever completely explained, the whole night vision, even though it was a, a not well done effect. They could have also given closure on that, you know, where he finds a camera or she goes and turns off a camera or something, you know, where we're given more information. I just felt everything was too uh, ambiguous. You never quite attach yourself to either character. Yeah, ambiguity is a delicate thing. Like, I love it, but if you overuse it too much, you're giving us nothing to invest in. And this was a, this was a, a stage play, whereas as a film, it doesn't work. And you really have to be careful in one location. The audience will get bored and you've got to handle your flashbacks carefully. Yeah, unless you're Tarantino, man, who can do who can do Reservoir Dogs, you know, a whole a whole movie just in one set piece or, or Alfred Hitchcock, um, Rear Window, you, you, you know, you're not going to pull it off. Yeah, the tension wasn't here for this one. Um, that being said, we will keep covering Australian films on the podcast. By all means, subscribe to us. Find us on Facebook. All the links are at podmeifyoucan.com. Uh, you can tweet us and tell us if you loved Embedded or if you uh, will now go out and see the film because... Um, of the way we've talked about it here. And uh, if you're looking for more Australian films and reviews from us, uh, on our YouTube channel, I've actually reviewed a couple of other Australian films recently. Uh, the Daughter, as well as Porno. Um, that's P-A-W-N-O. That's all shot in Footscray. There's a couple of videos dissecting those Australian films up there. You can find a link to our YouTube channel at podmeifyoucan.com. Look, next time on the podcast, we might be doing Girl on the Train. If you've read the Paula Hawkins book, uh, there's a decent chance that will be the next episode. We're always open to suggestion. You can find us on Facebook. Same link through podmeifyoucan.com. All right, guys, this was Embedded on Podme If You Can. Uh, and look, unfortunately, we didn't enjoy it, did we, Lloyd? No. <laughs> and then you can't win them all. Um, but as I said, the other two films that really stand out on this podcast were Upside Down and uh, War Horse. That this now, I think... And Man on the Ledge as well. Man on the Ledge, Sam Worthington, which, I mean, I think retrospectively, because I'm so close to Embedded now, I think wasn't too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think about that and go, oh, yeah, I remember that more fondly than uh, than Embedded. And Upside Down was, was just a huge mess. Oh, but gosh, it, what a terrible movie. I mean, you guys can find a backlog of all the Pod Me If You Can uh, episodes. On podmeifyoucan.com, there's a search bar up the top right, and any episode we've mentioned or anything you think, oh, have they done, uh, I don't know, pick a Marvel movie, DC movie, and type that in there, you might find it. Uh, and yeah, you guys can uh, delve back into the five years of Pod Me If You Can episodes. Uh, but for now, we will say goodbye, and we'll talk to you next week for The Girl on the Train. Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Please like us on Facebook and Follow us on Twitter. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Pod Me If You Can. Movie reviews. 